Hi, welcome to the third episode of the High School Basketball Happenings podcast, a podcast that candidly discusses all the hot topics taking place in the high school basketball world. We're your co-hosts, Zayn Motani and Paul Biancardi. Today is March 5th, and key happenings in the high school basketball world include uh, Grayson from Georgia, which is in the ESPN Top 25, uh, beat McEachern, led by Sharif Cooper, to advance to the state title game. Bishop Gorman won its ninth straight state title out of Vegas, out of Las Vegas, and Sierra Canyon beat Modern Day in what was a great game to take home the CIF Southern Sectional title. Paul, what's caught your eye in the high school basketball space? A lot of things going on, as you just mentioned. The teams playing for state championships have caught my attention at this point in time. Uh, Grayson, uh, one game away from winning that state title. They have a really good backcourt. Devin Smith and Caleb Murphy, two ESPN Top 100 players. And they're a team that is guard heavy and guard strong. And I think that's the big reason for their advancement. You mentioned Bishop Gorman from the West Coast. Grant Rice, he has done a phenomenal job at Bishop Gorman. This year's team really is still young. Will McClendon, a junior, he's in the ESPN 60 uh, he's the type of guy that um, just leads by example on both ends of the floor. He takes big shots, he makes big shots, and he's become somewhat of a defender for Bishop Gorman. So that, that's been an incredible feat for Grant Rice. Sierra Canyon, uh, they've been the biggest show in high school basketball all season long. Uh, they've been a very good team. They've gotten beaten on some nights, but make no mistake about it, Sierra Canyon is a team that has been just a program that everybody wants to know more about because they have four highly ranked players. And of course they have Bronny James. And when they're playing at their best, they're really hard to beat. And they beat a great modern day team uh, in the CIF Southern sectional title. So those things have caught my attention. And also at this time of the year, player of the, player of the year awards, Nate Smith, Player of the Year, McDonald's Player of the Year, Gatorade Player of the Year. Uh, I get a chance to vote on all those committees, and you're looking at the top three, four, five players uh, in the senior class, maybe a junior, maybe a sophomore. Uh, but those awards will be out soon. And it's always interesting to see who gets those awards because they're basketball-based, uh, but they also have academics and character tied into them. So it's an exciting time of the year in the postseason. So today, Paul and I are going to talk about a topic very near and dear to both of our hearts, a high school basketball shot clock. And Paul, the impetus for this discussion is this past weekend, I went to a couple of the high school basketball playoff games uh, here in Charlotte, and there were a couple of instances in which the game was out of its element because of the absence of a shot clock. So an example is I went to watch Olympic High play against Vance High School. There were six Division I players on the court, maybe two or three. Uh, that could be high major Division I players. And with seven minutes left in the game, Olympic, which was up three or five points at the time, started holding the ball. Um, and Vance was forced to pay, play uncharacteristic because there was no high, high, high school shot clock um, and just had to do things outside of the element of what was a really good game in order to try to speed Olympic up. So before we get into why a high school basketball shot clock 
does or does not make sense. I think it's important to provide the audience some background about the state of the union of the high school basketball shot clock and, and just a little bit about why it's not ubiquitous. So the National Federation of State High School Associations rule book doesn't allow the use of a shot clock at the high school level, but each state can decide on using one. Currently, there are nine states that use a shot clock at the high school level, uh, including California, Maryland, Massachusetts, the Dakotas, Rhode Island, and a couple of more. And the primary reason more states haven't adopted a shot clock is because of the supposed complexity and costs of operating a shot clock. It warrants additional equipment and personnel, which can add up over time, particularly for schools that are already on tight budgets. Um, Another reason that many states don't want to implement a shot clock is that by doing so, they forfeit a seat on the basketball rules committee with the NFHS, uh, which has other potential ramifications. So hopefully that was uh, that was good background for the audience. Paul, you've been a champion for a high school basketball shot clock for a while. You've tweeted about it. You've talked about it on broadcasts. Walk us through the argument for a shot clock at the high school level. Zane, after being a coach for 20 years at the Division Three and Division One level, and now for the last 12 years as a ESPN uh, recruiting analyst and college basketball analyst, I get to watch more games than I've ever watched before at the high school level. And the more practices I go to and the more games I go to, the more I see the need for a shot clock. And the main reason, in my opinion, is the pace of play and the ability to change possession uh, during the game. I don't think a shot clock is going to make the game higher scoring, but it will change the pace of play, which I think is extremely slow. And I think in some ways it's not fun to watch. And it, it doesn't enhance the growth of the players. And speaking of the players, I, I would talk to a lot of high school kids after games. And I'm talking to guys that may never play in college or maybe play small college basketball. They all would love to play with a shot clock. So when people say, well, it's just for the guys going Division One," no, it's not. It's for every single player that steps on the floor. It will enhance their skill level because they'll have to pass it, dribble it, possibly shoot it, and execute in a certain time period. And the kids want it. I think the fans will enjoy it because of the pace will be a little bit faster. And if the fans enjoy it, I think you're going to get more fans at the game, which creates a little bit more of a gate, which can help the tight budgets. And and I think coaches, some fight it right now. Some would love it. But I know one thing from coaching with a shot clock my entire life is that it will make you a better basketball coach because you have to a deal with uh, side out of bounds with uh, a few seconds on a shot clock, baseline out of bounds, maybe go two for one at the end of a quarter. So there's a lot of coaching uh, parts to this too. And I think that you can become a better coach. You teach your team how to execute an offense within 30 or 35 seconds. And, And the one thing that I think is true, we need a national shot clock. That means the whole country. With a universal time would be my vote. But even if we went on different times, I don't think it would vary that much. I think you're looking at some states have 30 right now, some have 35, 
If some wanted to go to 40, that's fine. Uh, most high schools play eight-minute quarters. Some still play 16-minute uh, halves or 20-minute halves, not that much. But, but I really think the shot clock will make the game fun for everyone. And when you mention the word game, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is fun. And by a team just standing there holding the basketball is not fun. And for teams that stall at the end of, say, the game, fourth quarter, last four minutes, or maybe even in the third quarter, they hold the ball for multiple minutes. I understand it, and if I was coaching, I would do the same thing if it gave my team a chance to win. But I don't think that was the intention of Dr. James Naismith when he invented the game. <laughs> yeah. Now, he didn't, he didn't have a shot clock back then, but uh, I, I think if he was around today, he would want uh, the high school game to have a shot clock. And the last point is, when you talk to people all over the country and in the world like I do, there's shot clocks in Europe. There's shot clocks in Australia. There's shot clocks uh, in different parts of the world. Canada, the international game has a shot clock for high school kids. Um, and if they can do it, I know that we can. Yeah, and uh, LeBron just a couple of days ago tweeted, um, I think one of his high school teammates had tagged him in a post about an, uh, an Ohio high school basketball playoff game that was six to four at halftime. And LeBron took notice and he tweeted, and I'm going to read it verbatim, please, like that's not playing basketball, man. Shot clock ASAP, exclamation point. So it's definitely caught the eye of, of LeBron. Well, I'm going to have to retweet LeBron then. <laughs> All right. So, Paul, you talked about why a shot clock. Let's just play devil's advocate and take the other side of the coin for a minute. What's the argument against a shot clock? Well, I haven't heard a specific argument from the National High School Federation. I've talked to some people at the state association level. And um, one of the reasons is if the state associations implement a shot clock, then they lose their voting priv privileges on a national level. And a lot of the associations don't want to lose that voting seat. Uh, so they feel a little bit with their hands tied about putting in a shot clock. While you mentioned that other states already have a shot clock, they didn't mind losing their voting privileges because they think it's best for the game. And obviously there's an economic uh, fight here. And, and that's real. And I'm very sensitive to that. Whether you put this in a budget or you fundraise for it, to buy a shot clock, uh, it's a one-time cost. And today, more than ever, it's at its lowest cost for shot clocks. And you service two teams, the boys and the girls, by buying shot clocks. I don't know the exact amount of money, but I know they are down to about $2,500. Uh, so you'd spend $2,500 one time. Uh, obviously, your maintenance people would implement the shot clock. And then you need a shot clock operator. And most of those are paid positions. Uh, for two to three hours at $10 an hour. And, and a lot of the schools don't have any extra money. In fact, they're cutting budgets. And, and I understand that. You could fundraise for these clocks and um, we have states that have done it. So I think that they have to be the leaders and tell the rest of the country on how to do it. But it absolutely can get done. And, uh, and sometimes it's just change. Sometimes associations uh, run by people that have been in the same position for a long time don't like change. I don't know if this has changed, Zane. I, I think this is something that the, sh the game needs. It's been around for a long, long time. 
It just has never got um, to the boys and girls high school level. And um, I really think the game needs it for the good of everyone and, and every everything in the game. It, it will make the game much more uniformed. So, Paul, I mean, we, we can talk about this all day. And my guess is if we had this conversation a year ago, it would have been along a similar sentiment. You talked about the pros. You talked about the cons. What needs to change in order for more states to implement this? Is it as simple as what you talked about, like schools doing fundraisers to get the 2500 if they don't have it in their budget? It is. It, 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 this is an economic roadblock more than anything. I'm sure it's philosophical. Mm-hmm. There's some yep. associations at the top maybe truthfully do not believe that the game needs a shot clock. Uh, my friend and an ESPN colleague and former head coach and longtime assistant at Indiana, Dan Dockage, who I admire, respect, and I really like Dan a lot, uh, but he fights me on this tooth and nail. Yeah. And um, if he heard this podcast, he would probably say something bad about it. Uh, you know, the state of Indiana, you know, they went to classifications after not having classes for a long time. And he'll tell me what, how great the games are. And they are great uh, in the state of Indiana, one of the best states in the country for basketball. I just think that the shot clock would enhance the game, the coaches and the players and I think the fans would love it. So that, that's my reasoning for it. And um, I think the roadblock is economics more than anything. We got to get uh, Dan on the podcast and let you and him go at it. I want to see a spirited debate between y'all. We'll have to call him up on the special, you know, Dan Dockett show line and try to get him. But I, I think he'd love to be on this. Let's do it. Paul Back in December, you published an updated top 25 player prospect list regardless of class. Now that we're basically at the end of the season, three, four months later, uh, let's do a refresh of that list, an impromptu refresh. Um, Give us your top five players regardless of class. Well, Zane, this will change one more time uh, as we approach the end of 2020. But I think number one has to be Amani Bates. Uh, For what he does now at his age group, when he plays up, he dominates. He produces on a consistent level. And he's just got so many physical and natural tools in the game that he's my top high school player, regardless of class. Number two, Jalen Green, who recently became the number one prospect in the ESPN 100. He was at six the last time I did this in December. He's made a big leapfrog for a lot of reasons. He's always been an NBA athlete, but his jump shot has just come to a level that people have to do more than just respect him. They have to guard him. Uh, He's shooting the ball at over 40% from three this season. He's had some dominating performances in terms of points. He scores inside the three-point line, from the mid-range, and he's also incredible once he gets into the paint with body control and his ability to finish dunks and plays. Very good defender, off the ball in terms of anticipation, can be a fantastic on-the-ball defender whenever he wants. And he plays defense, he can just be better at it. So that's the reason for the big jump. Number three would be Evan Mobley, 
produces double-doubles. Um, like to see more of a consistent effort from him, but and perhaps nobody can really impact the game or influence it at the rim like Evan Mobley. Then would be Cade Cunningham, uh, the best all-around player in the high school game in terms of just all-around completeness, IQ, toughness, defender, increased shooter, and a great playmaker. And for that last spot, uh, I'm going to go with Jonathan Kaminga, a physically gifted, always in attack mode, puts up huge numbers. It's hard to stop him one-on-one. You have to double-team Kaminga to slow him down. His skills have increased. His versatility is off the charts. Uh, he still has to learn shot selection and defense, but natural ability, physical tools. Uh, you want a guy to take maybe the last shot of a game or make a big play. It's Jonathan Kaminga. So those are my five, top five, regardless of class. I've got a little bit of a different list, Paul, and this may ruffle some feathers, but I'll go, I'll go reverse order. Uh, so at five, I have uh, Mobley. I just kind of what you alluded to, his consistency is a little concerning to me. I just haven't seen him always show up in big time games um, and really assert his physical dominance and, and presence. Um, and I needed more consistency from, from someone as elite as, as Mobley. At four, I have Jalen Green. I agree, his jump shot and the consistency in his jump shot really since Peach Jam, which we talked about in our first episode, uh, has really, really impressed me as I think about his development in, as a player in 2020 compared to 2019. At three, I've got Kaminga. Uh, you had him at five. Physical NBA specimen. I guess the reason I have him higher than you do is as I watched him in EYBL last year, he more than pretty much any other player on this list. There were more times where I said, wow, that is an NBA all-star type of move. Um, not that the other players didn't, but I felt I saw so many of those from Kaminga where he made things look so effortless. At two, I have Imani Bates. And at one, I have Cade Cunningham. I know he was four on your list. I'm just so high on him as a leader uh, with you know someone with incredible basketball IQ, no significant flaws uh, in his game. Is he the most athletic? No. Is he the best shooter? No. But I just trust him with the ball with 10 seconds left with my team down two to make the right play. So uh, I've got I've got Cade one. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the High School Basketball Happenings podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. If you have any topics of interest that you'd like for us to discuss in our next episode, please tweet us at Paul Biancardi at Zane Motani.